This podcast is brought to you by Don Green, the executive director at the Napoleon Hill Foundation and the newly released book entitled How to Own Your Own Mind. Please listen to podcast number 651 with Don and Greg as they discuss content that has been locked away in a vault since 1941 about the definite lessons on how to organize your thinking to attain success. In Greg's interview with Don, they speak about three main principles covered in the book, creative vision, organized thought, and controlled attention. There is a tremendous value from this interview with Don. Please listen to podcast number 651 with Don Green. You can also learn more about the Napoleon Hill Foundation by visiting www.naphill.org. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Steve, as I do every time I come on these shows, I thank the listeners because without them, as you know, there would be no podcast programs. And uh, it is amazing the numbers of people that come and listen to these podcasts and respond and actually reach out to a lot of the people and the authors that have, uh, have, are sharing their wisdom with us. And today, joining me from Wisconsin is Steve Wallace. Um, and Steve is the author of a brand new book called Oberon. I, I'm going to mess it up. And the Chocolate Factory. Bruni and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, Bruni. See what I did already? We just talked about that. But that's what happens when you're a little dyslexic. An unlikely story of globalization and Guyana's first gourmet chocolate bar. And this book is out now. Um, it is a Skyhorse Publishing Inc. book. Correct, Steve? Um, and people can get this at Amazon. What is the actual release date? It is out now. Um, uh, yeah, the actual release date is November 21st. Okay. Well, we're close. You can pre-order it now. Right around Thanksgiving. You guys can, everybody out there who's listening and Steve Wallace, he really has an interesting story. And Steve, I'm going to let my listeners know just a little bit about you. Oman Heaney is the first company to sustain exports of premium chocolate manufacturing entirely in Africa, uh, credited with producing the world's first single origin chocolate bar in 1994. So Steve's been doing this a while. All frac- factory workers are shareholders in the production facility. They receive a subsidized housing, free medical care for themselves and their families, free meals at the factory, commissary, free transportation to work and free uniforms. So Steve truly is a social entrepreneur. Um, you can see he delivered a TEDx talk as a guest panelist of the U.S. Department, uh, sponsored by African Growth and Opportunity Act Forum. Uh, as I was telling Steve just before we got on here, I, I actually watched the president of Guyana go to a little chocolate shop in Santa Monica, California. You can type him into YouTube and you'll find him. Uh, he also serves on the board of directors of the AFS-USA, Inc., which I don't know what that is. What is that, Steve? Um, AFS is the um, really pioneered the high school foreign exchange. Oh, okay. So they were the first ones to send high school students founded by World War II and ambulance drivers. And their thought was we saw the horrors of war firsthand. And the best way to prevent it from happening again is sending young people to live uh, abroad with families and maybe 
that way we could make the world a, a more just and peaceful place. Kind of an, uh, my, an my term is ended for that. So uh, just, just uh, and, but that's uh, okay. You, I mean, the foreign exchange students is. I mean, the key to my listeners is for everyone listening out there. Steve is truly a social entrepreneur. He's put his heart and soul in this. Um, he has a bachelor's degree in history, magna cum laude, from Brown, Brown University, a Juris Doctorate from the University of Chicago Law, uh, a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. And as I said, he lives in Wisconsin. He actually lives in Whitefish. I actually only thought there was a Whitefish, Montana, but now I know there's a Whitefish, uh, in Wisconsin. Whitefish and, Bay. Called yeah. Whitefish Bay, but those are the only two, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you can catch him. Bay. For my listeners, you want to catch more about this company and Steve and what's going on, uh, just go to omanheaney.com, and that's www.omanheaney.com. And we are going to put a link to that, Steve, along with other links into the blog. So don't worry about that. You guys can just check out the blog. Uh, it'll be there. Now, <clears throat> Steve, obviously this is about your journey. The book is about the chocolate factory. It's about globalization. It's about a lot of issues, but let's go down to the, just the essence of this. You, you have this chocolate factory, like you said, you're subsidizing the people in Guyana, where Guyana was actually the, the largest exporter of cocoa beans. Um, why Guyana and why not just export the beans and produce the you know the the chocolate bars like everyone else does in switzerland and germany and belgium and all these other places why did you choose to do this um greg let, let me just if i can just thank you for having me on your podcast and sharing this story in the book with your listeners i'm very grateful um i think you bring just terrific issues to the fore so i'm honored um I thought about if you were to ask people where good chocolate comes from, mm-hmm. most people would say Switzerland or they'd mm-hmm. say Belgium or France. And mm-hmm. and the question I would ask then is how many cocoa trees grow in Zurich? And the Zero. answer, of course, is none. <laughs> You're right. Um, yeah. and, and I thought about this as an economist might have thought of it. And we can go back to the 18th century Adam Smith, the sort of classical economist, and David Ricardo. And they talked about comparative advantage of international trade. What they meant really was you do what you do best and you trade for the rest. And when I thought about it, I said, you know, Ghana in West Africa um, is a beautiful place to grow cocoa. It has the topography and the microclimate that's just perfectly suited to growing fine cocoa. Why hadn't they moved up the value chain? So they're, they're in essence, selling wonderful cocoa beans for pennies a pound, and they're let out of others offshore, turning into chocolate um, and, and sort of reaping most of the money because they're contributing and most of the value-added manufacturing happens offshore and the branding and the labeling and the production. Um, and I thought, you know, some of that machinery we could, um, which is made in Europe or the United States, we could purchase, put in Ghana, and then we would have a freshness advantage because our beans then aren't put in the hold of a ship, fumigated, subjected to a six to eight week ocean voyage to get them to the U.S. or to get them to um, Europe, to Switzerland, where they're then turned into chocolate. I mean, these magical beans lose a lot of their wonderful freshness by being subjected to that ocean voyage. So we go from bean to bar, 
really just a matter of weeks, all in Ghana, and we think that gives us a freshness advantage. And we also, I wanted to experiment with, is there ways to create um, wealth and opportunity in countries that are indigenous for the growing of cocoa that really weren't, weren't heretofore able to play at the higher rungs of the value chain? Mm-hmm. You know, and as you say that, and I'm listening to you, I'm also thinking, tell us about, you know, the actual shipment of the chocolate bar once it's done, the complexity, because, you know, now you've got a bar, which I'm not saying it's not consumed in Ghana, but it's certainly not consumed probably at the same price, um, yet you bring it to the United States or you bring it to these other countries where the econ- the economy is better, you're getting more money. Do you, do you lose any freshness in the bar in, in the shipping process, or are you doing it all via air? No, no. We, um, it, it depends. It, it depends. But we can do um, humidity-controlled and temperature-controlled containers mm-hmm. to do large production runs. And then, I mean, it's, it's similar how it would be transported if I were shipping chocolate that I made in Wisconsin and sending it to San Diego. You'd have mm-hmm. to put it in a and a tractor trailer that's got humidity and temperature controlled, and you can track it every minute of the voyage or of the truck trip. So it's the same. So it's at that point, once it's turned into a chocolate bar, it's far more stable than when it's it. a raw bean. So um, you better hope those refrigerators. It, you better hope those refrigerators don't go out in the transport. <laughs> Here you have you a better, chocolate. You bag. better. And um, you know that this is why you, know, you need to buy insurance and all the other things just right. in case, because it's a very I mean, our chocolate bars, if you were to take them outside the factory, I mean, they would melt. Fine chocolate melts at body temperature. Right. And often in Ghana, it is in the upper 90s. So a chocolate bar, which just, which just begins to melt almost immediately. So you have to allow, allow for a great deal of care. And this is why also it's, it's a tough market to retail chocolate in, just because, um, you know, if you have a high percentage of cocoa butter, which makes your chocolate smooth and wonderful and gives you that terrific mouthfeel, it's going to melt yeah. at, a, at a lower temperature. So it's you know, Ghana is just emerging now to have sort of a better um, food service infrastructure with, with you know, refrigerated tra- trailers and trucks and things like that. But, you know, it's not been easy. And uh, our experiment that Oman Hini is, was really to see, could we create wealth, could we practice globalism that wasn't um, at the expense of one country versus the next? We yeah. see, I think, the word globalism is sort of transformed from, if you look at post-World War II era, where it was, was sort of, the, the it underpinned the Marshall Plan. If you remember, the Marshall Plan was the U.S. government decided to, to underwrite a lot of the infrastructure of Europe to rebuild it. And the thought being, if we trade with Europe, um, and everyone's making a little money, then then we're less likely to shoot at each other. And, and so that was globe, the first kind of attempt at globalism um, as a as a vehicle to create peace in the world. And um, you know, you fast forward 54 years to the Seattle protests, where globalism had become sort of an economic shorthand for exploitation of cheap labor. We saw so jobs from the U.S. going overseas, and sure. and all all the all the tumult that that caused in the U.S. economy. And I thought, well, what are the things, I'm going to go back to David Ricardo. What are, what does each country do best and what should we trade for the rest? Well, we can't grow cocoa in Wisconsin, far too cold. So we're going to grow the cocoa, but we can buy machinery that's made in Southeast Wisconsin and ship it to Ghana. 
We right. can do all the label design and the recipe work and the laboratory work, and and that's indeed what we do. So we export both intellectual property um, and um, labels and packaging goods that are all you know printed here in the United States uh, in Southeast Wisconsin, which has this great paper making and and design and and printing industries going back you know 150 years, quite frankly. And we try to do the best of what the U.S. can do, the best of what Ghana does. We put it around. Um, a product, in this case, chocolate bars or hot cocoa mix, and then we get a product that can sell competitively in a very high-value, highly demanding consumer markets like the United States or Japan. Yeah, and then it just comes to be a matter of distribution, but I know you're doing an amazing job of that. Now, you know, you mentioned here in your notes and, and from the book, too, that this is a slow company in a fast company world. And that's interesting because, you know, there are a lot of companies today um, which are not taking, uh, I would say, they're looking for the exit strategy before they ever start. Now, I'm not saying that you aren't looking for the exit strategy, but usually social entrepreneurs are people that are they're in it for the long haul. Um, why do you term this company a slow company and what, what is it that makes you different than Cadbury's, Hershey's, Nestle's? Um, all these other guys out there that are doing chocolate in a big way. Well, I think, um, uh, Greg, you, you touched on it. I should say the Hershey's, uh, Cadbury's now been purchased, uh, and the Nestle's, but these are all 100-year-old-plus companies. So I should right. say that, you know, in some ways they, they, they are longstanding, and, um, and for the large part of their, you know, most of them still are, or for a large part of those 100 years were privately held, closely mm-hmm. held. They were family companies. So, I mean, there's a lot... But you know, and I think when Hershey's they started, still, they, they, Hershey's they, still is, isn't it, Steve? Hershey still is. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. correct. Um, yeah. And uh, um, but so not Nestle. We know Nestle isn't. Nestle's we, is not, and Cadbury's is no longer. Right. Okay. Um, but, but so M and M Mars is M and M Mars would be the other big confectioner that has been a closely held or family company for for Yeah, there. I mean, when you look in Forbes, years. the Mars family is is you know, they're up there in the top, you know, the top 25, um, even Hershey's is way up there as well. I mean, it, it, we're talking billions of dollars these people have made, but in your case, you're growing a company slowly and you're a social entrepreneur. Um, you know, what does that mean to you and what do you see for the future, um, uh, for, for your company? Well, I mean, for me, there's a lot of joy I found in nurturing an idea and growing a business long term. And I wanted to celebrate, you know, through the book, really the satisfactions that come from running a business that employs people, that makes lasting contributions to the communities it inhabits, aspires to do some good in the world, makes a bit of money, which is the very definition of sustainability. Um, And we want to look at long lasting solutions to complicated and difficult situations and emerging economies, African economies that are transitioning from post-colonial to try to compete in a globalized, digitized world, um, these aren't sort of overnight solutions. And I think anyone that tries to tell you there's one simple um, solution is is probably incorrect, especially in these markets. Um, You know, what I noticed, you talked about fast companies. There's a, a sense that you have, especially perhaps if you're venture capital funded, you have five years, five to seven years 
where you either make it or, or your funders will execute their sort of remorseless exit strategy, which means you know, they, they either sell or you're out of business. Right. And in a lot of these economies that are just sort of learning how a f- capitalism works or don't have a lot of role models, it takes time. I mean, I would just wager you, it's very tough to build a, a, a sustainable business in five years. So if you want to play in emerging markets, and believe you me, a lot of the competitors to the U.S., kind of the global powers, are very big and very active in Africa – um, you've got to have entrepreneurs that are staying for the long term. And for mm-hmm. me, there's joys in that. I grew up in family businesses, smaller business, and I saw that sort of dedication it takes. That was my reality, and that was my, my sort of comfort level. I wasn't someone who hopped from company to company. I um, you know, didn't run huge or, or particularly large organizations, and they were all sort of family. I mean, employees mattered. You took care of people. You worked through issues and problems and challenges. And, um, um, and I think those qualities are sort of slow company qualities. Right. And, um, um, and I think that's an important part of our economy. Maybe not everyone is going to start a, a high-tech business um, that sells for a billion dollars or gets a valuation of a billion dollars in three to four years. It's wonderful when it happens. Um, but maybe the reality for the rest of us is we're going to start uh, uh, businesses that maybe last longer and, um, um, and, and do some good in the world. I was always struck. There was, you know, a year we made more money than General Motors. Or actually, you know, who had no net profit. And, and right, so, right, right. They lost. You know, they, had, a, a small, they had to get along. They had to get along. Or, you know, for many years we were more profitable than Amazon. You know, we didn't have the net revenues, but they didn't, you know, start making money till, till kind of quite recently. Uh, so, you know, for a small business, you have to find a way to keep the lights on very early in, in the trajectory. And so it makes, it makes you a little, I think, more creative. I always wondered if I had venture capital to start with, would we have run through it and and not had to be as creative and resourceful as we needed to be? Well, you know what it does, Steve, is it, it makes you gritty and resourceful, like you said. And so you get you get really gritty. You have to dig deep when you don't have a bunch of capital from the outside, or if it's just friends and family who are investing in your company. Um, I know your family had a t-shirt business. Um, you know, you became a lawyer, you worked in the family business. Um, you, you talk about some of the lessons learned, you know, um, I know this has been a painful at one point in the book, you say it almost cost you your home, almost cost you your wife, uh, it, some huge challenges to make this happen. But along the way you had, you, you, you talk about this two fathers, you know, your, your biological father and this Guianan host father with three wives and 21 children. What are you if you were to compare and contrast what you learned from uh, these two fathers as you entered this globalization business, um, what would you, what advice would you give to our listeners out there? Well, they were both, um, they took great joy in the business of doing business. And they loved spending time with customers. They enjoyed, you know, being on the road and the working through someone that maybe couldn't pay their bill and you'd go, you'd see them. And um, so my host father in Ghana, for example, in this, when I lived with him in 1978, the economy was just, uh, hit ground to a halt. It was a time of military dictatorships. Ghana was suffering. People were suffering. 
There was nothing on the shelves. And he had a half interest in a Ford tractor that he would lease out to other farmers. And he had a little interest, and we had some goats. And then he was able to had an import license and brought in a couple of um, uh, Toyota Corollas that he used and leased out as taxi cabs. And he, he just found these little ways, and he then invested in a little rabbits, you know, to for I think food and whatever he was trying to get out of the rabbits. And so, you know, this kind of resourcefulness in this risk allocation, um, and his just. And for a guy that was up country in Ghana in 1978, he was one of the most outward-looking. He thought, as improbable as it might have seemed, he could compete in the world market. I mean, mm-hmm. he thought his yams were the best yams in the world. I mean, and so he, he was a person that didn't fear globalism or didn't fear international competition. He said, well, what do I have to do to get out there and compete? And, what, and so he had this kind of wonderful worldview, as my father had, who, who allowed me to go to Ghana when I was... 16. And uh, um, so they had that trait of really loving to do business, um, found satisfaction in it, didn't have, you know, neither of them that I could tell really had this grand exit strategy. Uh, which I, It's just something, you know, this is, I love it today and I love it tomorrow. And I suppose if I don't love it next week, then maybe we think about exiting. But it, it wasn't sort of one of these grand financial benchmarks I need to get here and there. And, and maybe that's a shortcoming. Um, both of them maybe could have achieved more had they had more of that. I don't know what the word would be, Greg. Would it be sort of financial motivation or discipline? But on the other hand, they kept businesses going um, um, very long. I, I will tell you when my father finally sold the T-shirt business, uh, 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 the people that bought it from out of state, a lot of big ideas. They they had run it out of business within a year, oh, man. Months, and you know, and uh, to the detriment of the employees. And and it was a business that had shown profit since the Great Depression, and uh, you know, it was sort of heartbreaking. So so these. Small, smaller businesses are fragile, and large ones are too. And I think you have to have people that deeply care about them, not people who are looking, you know, what's my next? I'm going to run this. I'll be some position for five years and then leap on to the next company and that to the next. I mean, you need people that I think are – there's some merits to having people that are deeply, deeply committed to a specific city or a specific company and that are going to, you know, kind of dedicate their lives to staying there. Well, what I like about what you've done here is you're not just wearing this on your sleeve. You're actually living it. You know, I'm not saying that the conscious capital movement is wearing it on their sleeve, but the reality is I've been to hundreds of these meetings on social entrepreneurship and conscious capital and so on. And you do see that mindset. It's just so refreshing to get a story like yours where, you know, somebody's in it for the long haul. They're not looking to flip the company. Uh, they're really looking to do good. Give us a few of the statistics, if you would. You know, how many people are you subcontracting here in Wisconsin to make the paper and the boxes and the rest of stuff? And how many people in Ghana are actually working to uh, pick the cocoa, dry it? And what kind of economic impact do you really believe that you're that you're making? Tell us that story. Um, all right. So the, the world of Ghana, most of uh, there's about 750,000 individual cocoa farmers, mm-hmm. uh, and they are family-sized plots. I mean, they're, they're maybe three acres, three to five acres. They're not – well, it's what one family can grow. Right. Interesting, they're largely owned by women, 
because that the cocoa growing region in Ghana is one of the last matrilineal um, sort of anthropological cultures left in the world. So instead of property going to the oldest son like it did in old jolly old England, you know, property passes through the women's line. So it's a matrilineal society. Um, I don't own any cocoa farms. We we the beans that go into the factory are all grown in Ghana, um, and uh, so. You know, we, we don't purchase all the cocoa grown in Ghana by a long shot, but um, my goal was to begin to take Ghana, which in any given year is one of the, one, the first or second largest exporter of cocoa in the world by volume, and turn it into the smallest. I'd like no cocoa beans to be exported and every bean grown there to be processed into something, cocoa liquor, cocoa butter, finished chocolate, hot cocoa mix in Ghana. So that was the windmill I was tilting at. Um, we use, uh, boy, I'm going to say, you know, there's probably a dozen vendors in the United States everywhere from legal, accounting, computer, design, um, packaging, both paper packaging, cardstock packaging, corrugated packaging, um, warehousing, um, um, trucking storage, all of that happens in the United States. And as I said, we probably have uh, a dozen vendors, and most of them we've worked with for nearly three decades, you know, very long and loyal serving. Um, the factory itself, which um, produces all the constituent parts leading up to finished chocolate, so they'll do other things like you know, cocoa liquor and butter, which are sort of first stage processing, employs, um, you know, at its height it's been 300, and maybe now it's, it's a little under that, but so let's say roughly 300, 200 to 75 to about 300 people directly employed in the production facility. Um, and then, you know, we've got laboratories here in the U.S. we use and in Ghana that do all the, you know, we do independent third-party benchmarking and food safety analysis. And so there's a lot of people involved. And that's how I would like to look at globalism. It touches a lot of people directly and indirectly that all of a sudden you think, oh, yeah, we're, that's creating more work for that company, that subcontractor. And we, um, you know, I'm proud to say many of our subcontractors you know, love the story of Oman. He knew very happy to participate and, um, you know, been very good to us, um, you know, in trying to do something that was pretty revolutionary at the time. Um, can you imagine well, writing insurance on a luxury food product that comes from West Africa? You know, yeah, no one has done that before. So, you know, we needed some pretty creative people here in the United States that were willing to say, let's make this work. What do you need? to be able to sell on a grocery store shelf in the U.S. All these other things, it has nothing to do with how good is your chocolate, what does it taste, and what is the price. It's all the other pieces of the trade craft that we had to get, you know, make ourselves expert at. Well, I'm sure your production and operation part of it and, and making sure that, you know, that the chocolate is pure and that you watch the operations. And obviously, if somebody's going to, you know, write liability insurance on this, which all grocery stores ask for, um, you know, you're going to be subject to all of those factors, which, you know, you've overcome some major hurdles here to make this happen. And, you know, my hat's off to you on that. Now, if my listeners out there, Steve, want to find this chocolate, other than maybe going to your website to order it from the website, how, where are the major chains that carry it today? Um, what do you see in the future for distribution? Um I know I don't see it on my shelf, but that doesn't mean that I'm not. I'm, maybe I'm not looking until just now. You no, know, well, you know, well, we have 
you know, distribution. We have some in California and some in New York. To say that we're available coast to coast would would be disingenuous. We're not, um, you know, the depth of our distribution is 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 not as deep as uh, you know maybe some of our competitors. So maybe the best thing is really to go to the website. We can tell you if there's someone in your particular area that carries it, um, mm-hmm. and and that would probably be the the best and most efficient way to get our products. Um, okay. Uh, so uh, I think that's maybe the best. We don't, we're not doing a lot with some of the major retail chains. And, and frankly, it's very expensive to get shelf space, maintain right, it. Right, right, right. And it's sort of um, for smaller companies, and we're, we're still a small company in the pantheon of chocolate producers, it is um, not the best route. And that's, that's my own you know, personal right. sense. But we have pivoted away from mainstream grocery and kind of moving more direct to consumers or other independent retailers that really care about the product, care about the story, um, uh, you know, in, in sort of, uh, I think, in, in, in ways Well, you'd call it gourmet chocolate bar. anyway. This is this is definitely, if you were to put it up against, you know, you, you sent me a chocolate bar and I was just amazed at how good the taste was. Um the, the but it is gourmet chocolate, and so you're looking for a, a lot more of the boutique shops and the places that would That's help right. to tell the story and put it up there and keep that at the forefront versus just mass distribution of the product. I presume, right? Well, that's right. Um, and uh, you know, it's very special. Uh, mm-hmm. What chocolate that you tasted? Our dark milk, to our knowledge, is the darkest milk chocolate in the world. Um, so it's it's it's. Uh, very high cocoa liquor content, which gives you all the flavor and the aroma. We use a little bit of full cream milk in it to take kind of the traditional bitterness that you, you get if you have a high cocoa liquor content. And cocoa liquor, again, is the essence of the bean. It's non-alcoholic, but it's the part of the bean that has the 300 biochemicals that give you the addictive quality and the euphoric quality and the aphrodisiac quality. That's all comes from the liquor, cocoa liquor and so that chocolate you have is a very um, high co- – it would qualifies as a dark chocolate. We actually invented a new category. So you got more than twice the cocoa liquor you need under the FDA to call yourself a dark chocolate. But we put a little tiny bit of milk in, so you have to have the word milk on the label. So we were either a milk dark chocolate or dark milk chocolate. Well, they definitely, for my listeners, will put a link to the website. But again, it's Omanhini. Uh, Cocoa Bean Company, www.omanhene, and that's O-M-A-N-H-E-N-E.com, correct? Um, That's correct. And they can actually go there um, to learn more about your company, more about you, um, and also choose some chocolate bars or powdered chocolate. You've got a wide variety of things that people can get involved in. Uh, Steve, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. And for my listeners, uh, if you're looking for this book, as he said, it releases on the 17th, I think is what you said. 21st of November. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. And you can pre-order it on Amazon. So go up to Amazon and get it. We'll put a link to it. Uh, uh, It's O'Bruni. O'Bruni? Am I saying it right? Okay. Perfect. And The Chocolate Factory. So it's an unlikely story of globalization and Yana's first gourmet chocolate bar. Um, You really are helping not only 
this company to grow and get its message out. But think about the hundreds and hundreds of people that are being employed um, in a third world country, uh, giving them a better standard of living. And I think that is the key here uh, to social entrepreneurism is to really give a better standard of living to the people in other parts of the world. Um, Steve is uh, Wallace is a shining example of that. Um, please do go out and support this. Uh, we got Thanksgiving coming up. We got Christmas coming up. It's going to make great gifts. Um, so go out and get it. Any farting uh, words you want to leave with our listeners, Steve, about your experience here? Um, well, I would just say we all support each other. And there's you know, part of the joys of running a slower, smaller business is the chance I get, um, and through you, Greg, so generously introducing uh, the book and our chocolate to your audience, is that we all help each other. And I think the great satisfaction is I always love supporting the smaller and independent businesses and retailers and entertainment providers and, and uh, educators such as yourself. And, and so it's really a great pleasure to be on your show. I wish you and your listeners a wonderful Thanksgiving and a, and a new year in 2018. Thank you. Well, thank you too. And blessings to you and everybody that uh, you're serving out there. Um, I, I just wish the best for you. Continued growth, continued slow growth, uh, but continued growth for your company, uh, continued prosperity. So you can continue uh, the good work that you're doing. Uh, you truly are one of the better conscious capital people that I've seen. And uh, it's an enlightening story. Thanks so much, Steve. Best to all. Thank you, Greg. Be well. Bye now. This podcast is brought to you by author Jenny Lee, the author of a new book entitled Breathing Love, Meditation in Action. In Greg's interview with Jenny, they discuss the fact that breathing love is a spiritual guide to living love as embodied in the practice of meditation. Through Jenny's personal stories, she helps her readers understand how meditative practices can provide you with a deeper spiritual connection to yourself as well as a more authentic connection with others in your life. I hope you enjoy podcast number 654 with author Jenny Lee. If you want to learn more about the book and the author, please visit www.jennyleeyogatherapy.com. Listen to podcast number 654 to learn more about how meditation can help you to open up your true loving essence. Thank you for listening.